Well, tonight we are returning to Job and to this speech by Eliphaz, one of the so-called friends of Job. They meant well, but they didn't turn out to be all that friendly, really. And this sermon is entitled Some Good Advice, Listening to Some Good Advice, or possibly Learning from Eliphaz. Because although these friends got many things wrong, they did get some things right. And we know from the final chapter of Job, where God uh, commands that the three friends should repent, that they should offer sacrifices to God for what they have been saying, we know that they were men of God. They did start well. If you refer for a moment to uh, the end of chapter 2, Uh, We find that they came together to mourn and they came with great sympathy to comfort him. And for a a long time, they just sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, um, sorrowing with him. None spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. And how they started, no doubt, was how they finished after God had reproved them. But I want to try and draw some lessons from that aspect of things, but also particularly from verses 21 to 30 of this chapter. And the first lesson, we might call it a negative lesson, is this, that even the best of men are men at best. There's only ever been one person without sin or fault, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what matters ultimately is what God says and what God testifies of himself in the Bible and God's character. Here we find this man of God, Eliphaz, falsely accusing Job. And you can see that um, he doesn't hold back in the first half of this chapter. Listen to these words. Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and strip the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. And so it goes on. And these are outrageous accusations and lies. We glanced this morning at Job chapter 29 and we saw that in Job referring to how it was in the previous days, he was also in a sense personifying wisdom and giving us an insight into the character of the Lord Jesus himself. But as a man uh, in, in his righteousness, in his day, he says he delivered the poor, uh, and the blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon him. He was a father to the poor. He, he looked after the widow and the fatherless. The, 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 I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. So here... We have this man bringing these terrible and unfounded accusations and he simply uh, brings these accusations because as far as, as he is concerned, the afflictions that Job was experiencing was a sign that God was dealing with him and chastising him. In other words, he was a very poor witness, a very poor reflection of the church of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament day. And I would just make this point. You may not be a Christian tonight, but even the Bible itself teaches us 
that ultimately we must not place our trust in people, and nor should we be ultimately hugely swayed by disappointments with people. You may remember that even in the apostleship of Christ, even in that band of 12, there was one wicked man who betrayed him for money, Judas Iscariot. And of course, it's so easy, isn't it, to make the faults of Christians or Christian churches uh, and even real Christians, we might say, real believers who get it all wrong and mixed up to make a great big excuse of that and say, well, if that's how they're like, uh, then I'm not going to uh, be uh, following their God. I'm not going to embrace uh, what they believe. But of course, God himself is telling us what people are like. God is saying, look, it is, uh, it's a, a package deal, so to speak. The church are saved sinners. The church gets it wrong. And you have people who quarrel among themselves, even within the Christian church. Of course, it's bad, it's wrong. But this is no excuse for you not to repent of your sins. This is no excuse for you, because as soon as by the grace of God you come into the church, you will just add in your own two penny worth of fault and failure, just as each of us does. I hope you won't mind me saying that to you, because even the best of men are men at best. That's the first lesson. Don't make an excuse of other people's sins within the church of Jesus Christ. But secondly, a second lesson here is, quite plainly, when we look at people like Eliphaz and Job, we have to admit that we are not the best of men and women. Yes, there are the best of men, and we can think of well-known names in the Christian church and look at their lives and say, well, they were truly good people. But we cannot so easily dodge the accusations of Eliphaz. Job may have done so because of his very godly lifestyle, but we cannot do so. Just look at some of the things that Eliphaz says and say, well, is this something I've not been guilty of? Verse 3 to 4, for example, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter, thee, will he enter with thee into judgment? In other words, what Eliphaz is wrongly accusing Job of is something surely that many of us have been guilty of. That is that we have inflated ideas about ourselves. We imagine that we can somehow impress God. That some, there have been things about us that God must be really pleased about. But really, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? He is pure. He is light, unapproachable light, blazing holiness. What is our little righteousness, our tawdry righteousness and goodness compared to him? Well, look at verses 7 and 9. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Yes, Job, as an expression of Old Testament piety and wisdom, he didn't do these things, but... Have you and I never been guilty of selfishness, of the neglect of people in need, 
within our own family circle, perhaps, or within our neighbourhoods? Have we not been guilty at times of not doing what we ought to do? You know, the Church of England Confession, we've done those things which we ought not to have done, and those things which we should have done, we haven't done them, we've left undone. Is there any of us that can say we haven't done so? It's not so easy for us to dodge Eliphaz's accusations. And what about verses 12 to 14? Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold, the height of stars, how high they are. And thou sayest, how doth God know? Can he judge through the thick cloud? Do you, have you never imagined that God cannot see you? Have you never imagined that God isn't interested in what's going on in your heart? Do you think because he's so distant and so invisible and because there's thick clouds in the sky and the universe is vast that somehow he doesn't know about you? And therefore you can just indulge yourself and indulge your sin? No, it's not so easy to dodge what Aliphaz says. And look at how he characterizes the behavior of those who lived at the time of the flood in verses 17 and 18, the universal flood under Noah, verses 16 to 18. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overflown with the flood, which said unto God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? Yet he filled the house, their houses with good things. Depart from us. Get out of my life. I don't want the Bible. I don't want preachers bringing uh, home truths to me. I don't want to be told I'm a sinner. I don't want people to take it right home personally and say, well, have you personally repented? Yet he filled their houses with good things. And so the inference there is that they were just plain ungrateful. Never crossed their minds to give thanks to the Almighty for filling their houses with good things. Does it ever cross your mind to do so? All the good things from the supermarket, all the good things from the uh, garage, the car, the, all the various good things that come into your life, uh, the, the house, the pension, things that many others do not have, the job. No, we're not the best of men and women. We are ungrateful. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So here's a, a, a gospel lesson from this chapter. Come as a sinner to Jesus. And this relates to our third gospel lesson. Eliphaz like the other two friends, was guilty of misreading the circumstances. It's bad for you, therefore God is judging you. And it was a very common mistake right up into the times of the Gospels. We find the same mistake sometimes in the thinking of the, the disciples. And we have to say it continues to be the case. It's bad with you, therefore God must have something against you, and so you steer clear of people whose lives are knowing problems. But it can work the other way, can't it? Everything's fine with me, therefore I must be in God's favour. God must be pleased with me because there's no problems. I haven't had COVID. 
I haven't been disturbed in my work. I've got a happy family and uh, I've had a good life. And so God must be happy with me. But that's maybe misreading your circumstances. Of course, God may be happy with you through Jesus Christ if Jesus is your saviour. He will be happy with you, but not because of you, but because of your saviour. But don't misread your circumstances. Don't just assume because all is well that God is happy. That was the sin that really bugged Asaph as he saw it in others. In the Psalm 73, he tells us, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But he describes them in their prosperity. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They just die quietly in their sleep. They're not racked with pain. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. What a colourful picture that is. So much fat that even their eyeballs stand out of their sockets. Everything is fine for them. But, as the psalm goes on to say, he realised that God had set them in slippery places. They were going to be brought into destruction in a moment if they lived on their godless lives. And what really matters then is not your circumstances, but how it is in your soul towards Almighty God. That's what really matters. And in that sense, we have to say Eliphaz is right. He's got it all mixed up about Job, but he's got the main principles right. What matters is how it is between you and God. And so we need to listen now to his advice in verses 21 to 29. And we can summarize much of this advice with these words. Take action. Take action. Read the first three verses of our section, verses 21, 22, and 23. And notice the verbs in it. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Notice that. Acquaint yourself with him. Receive the law from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. Return to the Almighty. If they're not all quite in the imperative tense, most of them are. They're saying there's something you need to do to be right with God. It's no use saying, well, God is sovereign and, uh, and I'm waiting for him to do some th- amazing thing. Eliphaz is, Eliphaz is saying to Job, he's wrong in his diagnosis, but he's right in his solution for those who are in the state that he thought Job was. That is, you've got to take action. Remember how the people responded to the preaching of the apostles on the day of Pentecost? Peter had come and stood up and said these remarkable things about Jesus, that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead, 
This Jesus is the very one of whom the prophets uh, speak. He's, He's the man approved by God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs. In other words, he's the Messiah. And yet you, with wicked hands, have crucified him. God has raised him up. And he continues like this. And you remember, perhaps, perhaps they interrupted his sermon because they were so pierced to their hearts. They said, what shall we do? He says, you've got to take action. You've got to repent. You've got to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Not just sit there and by osmosis enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not just sit there and somehow it's going to all diffuse into you and somehow you'll be wafted in, but there are things you should take action with or about What are these actions? Firstly, seek God. Seek him directly. Seek him personally. Acquaint now thyself with him. That's more than just think about God. That's more than just acknowledge that God exists. Perhaps you've done that all your life. Thank God for that. That's a a start. But that's not far enough. You've got to become acquainted with him. You know what an acquaintance is. It's somebody you know, somebody you've met. You've got to seek him directly and personally. And the Bible tells us that the way to do that is to come to Jesus Christ, his son. Not just attend a service or two. Although that's good, that's a start. But what are our services? They are... To use the theological term, they are means of grace. But you've got to get to the grace, haven't you? We've each of us got to get to the grace. It's no use stopping on with the means. The Pharisees in the days of Jesus, they had the means. They had the law of Moses. They had the prophets. They were closer to those uh, heroes of the Old Testament than any of us. And yet... They crucified Christ because they only had the means, but they didn't press on to find the grace which those means point to. The hymns we sing, the Bible is read, the prayers are uttered, the Bible is explained and applied, but you've got to take action and use these things to get to know God directly and personally. That means you've got to go to him and go to Jesus Christ. Secondly, notice he says, Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth and lay up his words in thine heart. Now that's a very poetic and lovely way of saying it, but we can be just a little less poetic and a bit more plain about it and just say this, Obey God's words. Obey it. Don't just taste sermons. Don't just listen to sermons. Don't just think about how good the preacher is or how bad the preacher is. You can be saved under a terrible preacher if you obey what the preacher says. Even an Eliphaz, even someone whose theology is all out of sync, but he does understand certain basic things. There's enough in there for you to be saved. If you only do it, 
and receive God's word from his mouth and lay up those words in your hearts. You see, the danger is that we can just let sermons sort of waft over our heads and we say that was a good sermon or that was a good preach or he was having an off day then. But it doesn't matter whether he's having a good day or an off day, we must each of us receive what God says to us and take action upon it and do it. You know very well the parable that Jesus tells at the end of his Sermon on the Mounts. You know very well, I'm sure, how Jesus closes that sermon. And it's not just a story for Sunday school scholars. It's not just a children's talk, is this? You know, the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. If you know the chorus, you probably can sing it to yourself. But this is actually Jesus speaking to a crowd of adults, of thinking people who are listening to him. And he's saying something for all his hearers. If you don't want to be like the house that collapses, that just is is devastated by the flood, by the rain, by the winds, we might say by death, by judgment, by all the kinds of things that can happen to you, if you don't want that house to fall and that whole devastation of your life, you need to not only hear my sayings, but you need to do them. You need to do them. It's very simple, isn't it? Take action. And then we might summarize verse 23 in very simple terms. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. (coughs) Jesus is saying, sorry, Eliphaz is saying here, Return. Return. Seek God. Obey his word. Return to him. You say, well, how do I, why do I need to return? Well, perhaps you've never actually been to him. And so there's a sense in which you return as a human being from what Adam first knew, but mankind has lost. You need to return to to him in that sense. You need to be like that prodigal son in Luke 15, part of that parable, that series of parables Jesus told about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And you need to be like that one who, when he comes into the field and he's, he's spent all in riotous living and he's at the end of his tether, he's at the end of his resources, There's a mighty famine in the land. He's in want, and he begins to think, my father's house. He begins to think, this is no good. I'm in the wrong place. This is certainly not heaven. This is hell on earth, what I'm going through. Feeding with the unclean animals. uh, Absolutely separated from my loved ones. Speaking here, of course, the father's... Uh, speaking to us of God. So what will I do? I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. That's right. That's, That's what returning means. That's what returning to God means. It means saying, I've sinned. 
and I'm coming to you now. Receive me. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He wasn't coming to assert his rights. He was coming in humility. You know how the New Testament tells us in the first letter of Peter about these Christians. Ye were a sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls, unto the overseer of your souls, unto the shepherd, to the good shepherd. There is a good shepherd for you. There is an overseer, a lover of your soul. And he says, return to me. Return to me. Return to Christ. And then we can just find one more gospel lesson here out of Eliphaz's words. One more piece of good advice. This perhaps will surprise you how he ends his exhortation here to Job. It's this. Think well of God. Think well of God. You see, one of the themes, the sub-theme in this book is what Satan is trying to do. Satan has been trying to make God think evil of Job. Does he fear you for nothing? Do this to him and he'll curse you to your face. Take away his health and you'll soon find out what is motivating him. He's trying to slander Job to God. And through the activity of, particularly of the three friends, he's trying to slander God to Job. And that's what he does. He lies about God. He tries to peddle his lies and say, this God, what kind of a God is he? He's a monster. He's horrible. And all he wants to do is to imprison you. All he wants to do is to make your life a misery. And so you are repelled from drawing near to him. And you're repelled at the thought of your Bible and repelled at the thought of prayer. That's because you're not thinking well of God. That's because you're giving God absolutely no credit. But listen now to how Eliphaz describes God to Job. Firstly, he says, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. Perhaps we ought to notice too that phrase in verse 22, receive, I pray thee. There's a warmer note here in Eliphaz as he brings these things to Job's attention. There's a warmth there. There's an affection underneath all his brutality, his verbal brutality to Job. He really does actually want what is best for him. And that's what God wants. He wants what is best for you. Good shall come unto thee. What kind of good? Well, here we have to look at it through the lens of our present day as opposed to the day of Job. But in the days of Job, it says, Then shalt thou lay up gold as dust, and the gold of Ophir as the stones of brooks. Yea, the Almighty shall be thy defense, and thou shalt have plenty of silver. In other words, a usual way in which God blessed in Old Testament days was through material prosperity, but not inevitably. Not inevitably, otherwise we miss the point of Job. But usually, in the days of the Old Testament, God had ways of showing his pleasure, ways of looking after 
his servants. And at the end of the book of Job, we find him doing just that, restoring to him his property, restoring to him his wealth, giving him new daughters, and so on. Seven sons and three daughters. And these, these three daughters were among, amongst the most beautiful women in the land. But it was, in Job's case, prosperity without idolatry. Oh, that's a blessing. That God should give you prosperity and yet take away your covetousness. That God should give you all that you need and all that you want and yet you continue to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You continue to value his friendship above anything else. To value his service above anything else. So that if he were to take these things away, you would be like Job, you would still worship him. That's the good that God does for you. And then listen to this. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up, thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Just think of that blessing. That sin is taken out of your family circle. Iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Just think of the blessing to see your children walking with the Lord, the blessing to see integrity and the beauty of spiritual holiness in their lives. That's a blessing. Instead of running riot, instead of bringing shame upon their parents, instead of uh, doing what uh, you find distasteful to think of, here is one of the blessings. And we do have to look at this through Old Testament eyes, or New Testament eyes, we have to understand that God, these are general principles. But the, the big principle is this. Think well of God. Verse 26. For then shalt thou have thy delight in the Almighty and shall lift up thy face unto God. You'll actually enjoy God. You'll actually enjoy having fellowship with him. You will enjoy listening to sermons if they are bringing to you the word of God. You'll enjoy fellowshipping with him in prayer. You'll enjoy it. You say, I can't imagine that. That's because you have your old heart, your dead heart. But if God gives you a new heart, you will delight in God. And his love will be shed abroad in your heart. In verse 27, thou shalt make thy prayer unto him and he shall hear thee. And thou shalt pay thy vows. He will answer your prayers. He will help you. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our griefs and cares to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And you'll find that so. And then finally in verses 29 and 30, when men are cast down, <coughs> then shalt thou say, there is lifting up and he shall save the humble person. This is what you'll say, there is a lifting up and he shall save the humble person. I think that is both phrases mean this is what you will say. In other words, you will be able to bring help to others in their trials and needs. When people are cast down, you have something to say more than whistle in the dark or hope for the best. But what you'll say is that there is a place you can come where you'll find help. There is a saviour. There is someone who... Indeed, is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And 
Yes, it is rough at the moment, but God gives grace to the humble. And you'll be able to encourage others. You see, we have to think well of God. God wants what is best for us. So take action. Take action. Seek him personally. Obey what he says to you. Return to him. And think well of him. All your life, the devil has been filling your mind or trying to fill your mind with slanders about God. But you know, God is love. And he so loved us as to give his son, Jesus Christ, as our saviour and redeemer. Think well of him and come to him and be blessed by him.